Our Heavenly Father, our most gracious Redeemer, we thank you for that you chose us. Yet while we were sinners, you still chose us. You chose us in the foundation or before the foundation of the world, and our names are written in the book of life. That you did not give up on us, for we yet still sin. But through your grace and our faith in you and your son who died on that cross, we are all saved. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So Austin's going to open it up. Please remain standing. Um, sorry. We'll open up with today's, today's passage, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you were in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were of nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Thank you. Please be seated. So for those who don't know, I am RJ. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Cross Train. Um, and for the summer series, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, normally, we teach through a book from front back and if you want to the one we just finished was Romans and if you go to crosstrain.church you will be able to see all of those past messages and listen to them all um, so last week we heard Don talk John talk about who is Jesus and I asked John this morning a couple of things I said hey did you see my notes and he says no I purposely didn't look and I said well I used a little bit from your message last week and my message later on this week and ironically he did the same thing during the gospel morning, or the prayer time and stuff so it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will work us um, to keep everything going and to make it all match up so so how are you saved now I'm sure most of you out there especially if you've been saved or saved for a while know how the answers to these questions um, but maybe somebody out there doesn't or maybe you need to be the one that steps in and helps lead them to a saving grace so I challenge you just kind of like John said connect the points and I call it you have a two to three minute elevator speech what are you going to pull from today's message that you may need to share with somebody to bring them to saving grace so as we work through this Keep those couple of things in mind. So it depends on when you were saved or how you were saved. You've got a couple of different opinions, options, however, on that thing. Maybe 
you had a dramatic event. You know, being trapped in the Twin Towers, being caught up in drugs, not necessarily of your own doing, but it happens. Maybe it was a life event where you lost a family member or a close friend. All of them impact us in different ways. And they all have an opportunity to leave us to grace. Or maybe you grew up in a church. This is my story a little bit. I've been saved, I would claim, for over 50 years. But I will tell you, just as John mentioned, I've wrestled over the last couple of years for my story. I grew up knowing who Jesus was. At a very young age, I also knew he died on the cross for my sins. No matter what I did, at that point, I was going to be in his grace. Kind of odd. I mean, I've been at this for over 50 years. But I will tell you, my walk with Jesus took off about 15 plus years ago. And that walk took off when I opened this up. I developed a relationship with Jesus at that point. So I often struggle. Did I really become saved then when I opened this book and created a relationship with Jesus? Or was it 50 plus years ago when I realized he, why he died on that cross? I don't know. But I tell you, whatever your story is, it's unique to you. And don't be afraid to share it. So I've already kind of jumped into the talking point. Good, just got it up. Um, so what changed in your life that made you realize you needed Jesus? Was it that dramatic event? Or was it just you grew up in the church, so that's all you know? I can tell you at some point you came to that realization you needed Christ. We all need Christ. And as we kind of move throughout the message today, I want to challenge you with one thing that really hit me. And even though we were saved, we were, we still sin. We are still sinners. We will always be sinners as long as we walk this earth. And we always need Jesus because of that. When I originally put this message together, um, my first talking point had five subpoints. A lot of things to cover. Um, and I'm not going to do it. Midweek, that hit me on one is I couldn't pick what needed to be covered out of that. There wasn't time to cover it all. So if you want those points, I am more than happy. My information's on the back of the bulletin. Send me an email, send me a text, and I'll be happy to share those with you. So the first question today is, or the training thought for the day is, how are you saved? We're going to focus on why do I need to be saved? Who saved you? And what do I need to be saved? Or what I need to do to be saved? So start with why do I need to be saved? This one, if you've been around the church for any length of time, and I've already told you, we're sinners. We were sinners before we were saved. We still sin after we were saved. So I'm going to reread the first three verses of 
of Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And what hit me out of that verse is I, after I sat the, and I was praying, it's like, okay, this, what, what, I was asking the Lord, what do you want me to share? And that's when I scrapped the five verses, or the five subpoints that I had originally. And I went back and reread this, and it said, in which you formerly walked, formerly lived. Well, guess what? I still sin. I still have the same fight, the same arguments, the same whatever, sinful ways, before I was saved as I do today. And I'm going to point a couple of those out here in just a second. You know, James 4.4 4 says, You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And it was that purpose, that were one of those verses. So James 4, you guys have heard me talk about before. It was when I was reading James 4 back in January of 2020 that it really hit me it was time for me to retire. And it was words like that. I was convinced when I was working that I could manage my Christian life and do everything God wanted me to do and still manage and chase the dream of my career. Took him about seven months working on me to prove I couldn't do that. He many times as I tried to get promoted at work, nope, nope, nope. I still wasn't getting it. Started in June of 19, January 2020, I'm a little slow. I got to the message. I was trying too hard to compete with maintaining all of my worldly American dream, whatever you want to call it, options, and still live the Christian life he wants me to live. It can't be done. And I'm not telling everyone to go out and quit your jobs. Don't take it from what I just said. If he calls you to do that and go do something else, go for it. I give the Starrett's, Taylor and Farron down at Rocky Point, they did just that. That's not everybody's calling, and that's okay. I was chasing one thing in this world, and God hit me. That's not what I was, that's not what I was supposed to be doing. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where I get, we're all sinners, we're still continuing to sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. My one verse that showed up or hit me probably 15 plus years ago was a little bit after I started reading the Bible. I used to go, there used to be a Thursday lunchtime event at North Phoenix Baptist where Tom Schrader taught. And he was teaching through the book of James. And just who I am, I would try to pre-read everything he was teaching on so I, so I could try to take as much of it in. And James 4.17, to him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. 
it's not, it's the verse I go to. It's the verse that for me tells me in relation of who I am to Christ. And even though I know that, I sinned on Thursday. I was running late. I had been with Cindy and my father-in-law. And I needed to hit Costco, and I needed to go home. I wanted to make sure I had dinner started so when Cindy got home later that evening, she'd be able to eat. I was at Costco, and I'm walking through the parking lot, and there's this elderly lady pushing a basket. She's going back towards Costco. I didn't do it. I thought about it afterwards. I should have stopped and said, ma'am, can I help you? Was she looking for her car? Maybe she was going back into Costco. I don't know, but I didn't stop to ask. How many times do you drive past somebody that needs help on the side of the road? Maybe it's an elderly couple. Maybe it's a family with a young child. It's 110 outside. We go past it. Maybe for you, it's not necessarily those events. Maybe it's more physical things. New vehicles. New vehicles aren't bad. Why do you have a new vehicle? Are you trying to maintain an image? A status? Is it an expectation of your work? Those could, depending on your reasons, be why having a new vehicle every two years is a bad thing. A new house. You always want the latest and greatest cell phone. They're just things in our lives that take precedence, some of them minor, some of them more big, that shouldn't take precedence in our life. This is where I'm challenged, especially those who are already believers. Examine your life. What is that idol in your life that's preventing you from truly following Christ? And I'm going to go back to the car for a second. Or pick a house, it doesn't matter. When Jesus finally returns, he is not going to say, everybody with a Corvette, show up first. You may get there first, your car may be faster. <laughs> but he's not going to say that. In fact, you're probably going to be in back of the line. Or those who live in Paradise Valley, compared to here. Those houses, I think, are more expensive. Just saying. It doesn't matter. The reality is, it doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship with Jesus. That's it. And just to show that having nice things isn't necessarily bad, and it's a verse I go to because I sometimes have to justify this to myself. It says, and people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are the gifts of God. So if he gives you the, that new car, it's not bad. It's why. What's your heart motive behind that new car? And you could say, well, RJ, I make good money. Okay? I donate 10% to the church. I'm here to tell you, if you've ever sat down with me, I don't preach a percentage in tithing. I think of the ta uh, talents and that thing. Some he gives more and expects more. Some he gives less and expects less. Why is everybody set to a fixed number? If he's blessed you immensely, why shouldn't you bless others? Why shouldn't you bless the church? It's his. I will never preach a percentage. 
And I even wrote this. So those who of us who've taken the New and Old Testament, at one point last year, I wrote in on just that subject was my, my paper. And my paper was, if you, and I read this, so I didn't calculate it, so even though I'm a number geek. The actual percentage in the Old Testament of your tithing was actually 23%, not 10. People grab 10 because it's easy. I'm telling you, there is no percentage. You've got, it's a hard issue in what you give. So my second sub-point then as to why do I need to be saved? Because when you die, as it says in Hebrews 9, and is it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And many times we've heard Doug up here say, your final address is one of two locations. It's going to be with our Lord and Savior, or it's going to be in the pit of hell. It doesn't change. It doesn't go away. If you ever see somebody who has passed away and been to a funeral, and they say, at least they're not suffering anymore. He's in a better place. That's true if you're saved, because we're in the midst of our Lord and Savior. If you are not saved, your point's going to be, in Revelations 20, the lake of fire. I'm not a big fan of scare tactics, but that should scare you. Just like I don't believe you're going to argue somebody to Christ. You've got to love them to Christ. It's enough to keep me at a checkpoint. I don't want to go to the one. I want to be with our Lord and Savior. So if you hear somebody ever say that at a funeral, use tact, use your timing wisely, pull them aside. Maybe that person's death doesn't have to be in vain. You can use maybe that opportunity to share with another non-believer where they're truly at. Maybe not from a scare tactic, but from a love them. We should want all people to end up in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Why don't you please turn your Bibles to Luke 19. And we're going to read verses 19 through uh, 31. And this is the rich man and Lazarus and what I was just kind of talking about. Okay, so I'm going to read it first the way I have it written in my notes. And just for the record, rich is a relative subject. If you're down in Rocky Point with the I-68 group and you're helping to build a home, I can promise Every one of those people down there who are getting a home, look back up here at us here, and we're all rich. You may not feel rich. You may feel struggles. But in somebody else's eyes, you are rich. So, like I said, I'm going to read the first verse, and then I'll go back and read it the way it's actually written. Now, there was a rich man, and he drove new cars, and he lived in big houses and had the latest technology. Could be written just that simple today as it was written thousands of years ago. And it says, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. 
and a poor man named Lazarus laid at the gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in cool water, or in cool off my tongue, for I am agony in this flame. I'm going to pause for just a second. When I read that in context of also Revelation 20 and the lake of fire, I have this vision of a bubbling volcano, just boiling red hot. But instead of being thrown into it and burning up, you're just thrown into it and burning. Constant agony. When I read that, that's the vision, not, or that's what I interpret what I'm reading. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may, be, he may warn them. He's got a concern. He's concerned about the people he's leaving behind, that they don't end up in his same fate. So, they, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. But he said, no, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And I challenge you to think about that in the context of Jesus. Jesus performed miracles on people that after they were healed, walked away. They had firsthand knowledge of his greatness, of his power, and they walk away. So, we don't want our friends and family. We're still walking on this side of eternity. Use it as an opportunity. Use your connecting the points. Use your um, elevator speech and appeal to your friends and family that don't know Christ and so that they may come to know Christ, that they may spend it with you in the arms of our Lord and Savior and not burning in hell. So the second talking point, I ask the question, were you scared straight to salvation? Or perhaps you were called or led? And if so, who called you? Well, the answer we're going to find out here in a minute was Jesus. But as we heard John last week, he planted some seeds, hopefully, prayerfully, with his carpool worker as he asked those three questions to them. 
In Matthew 9, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In this case, John was the laborer. You're a laborer. We're all called to make disciples. And I say all of that so that you understand we have an opportunity. After we're gone, that opportunity is not here. When I say gone, when we leave this earth and when we're with our Lord and Savior. The opportunity is now, not later, now. Don't waste that moment. Find it. If you want to also turn to Matthew 13, and we're going to go through the parable of the sower. Because I thought it, it just matched up so well with what John taught last week. And then as he asked those questions, was he planting a seed? Was it falling on deaf ears? And we don't know. And the reality is it was Christ using John at that moment in those people's lives to hopefully plant some seeds. Starting in verse 1, it says, And that same day Jesus went out to the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him, so he got in a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he stood and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate and devoured them. Their hearts are just hardened. They have a whole different belief. They're not, it's like throwing a ball against the wall, bouncing off. No, no, nothing there. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And maybe that's the seed John planted with his co-worker he carpels with. But I'm going to also argue, John's got some more time with him. So I like to watch farming shows. Farming shows, they cultivate. You know, as they were getting ready to plant, we're... They're in the summer now, but a few months ago, they were all planting their fields. And it amazed me that in a field that was planted last year, they would pull out hunks of concrete, a T-post. These fields were just planted, but they're there. So maybe John needs to, as he continues to carpool with his co-worker, just start slowly lay, cleaning up the field, and maybe those seeds will finally sit. Other seeds fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. I just take that as a total influence. You're being influenced by things of this world, and they're just not going to let you go. And then other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, and a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I say that. You don't know that conversation you're going to have with an individual, what's going to happen. You also don't know the conversation that's maybe overheard by somebody. I may not even be talking to Tracy. Maybe I'm talking to Kylie, but Tracy hears it. That could be enough to lead them to grace, to lead them to a saving grace. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Use what you have. Everybody needs Christ. So who saved you? Well, I've already gave that answer away. And it was Jesus. 
Um, Jesus saves. We are nothing more than his laborers or messengers, although that does not diminish our role. You'll see here, and actually it comes up in the third point, not the second one. We are called to be his workers. But Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read a couple of verses out of John. It says, but as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed in his name. He who believes in him is not judged. And he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, John brought up the point, and I can't help but also reiterate it. Satan knew who Jesus was. Satan tried to tempt him after he was saved and baptized for 40 days. And Jesus totally, completely, every single time, refuted him. Satan, even though knowing who Christ is, will not end up with Christ. He will end up in the lake of fire. So I say all of that. We have a message to send. To go and make disciples. So we said in Matthew, whether you want to look at it from a sower or a laborer or just the messenger. So I challenge you with this. So how are you going to live out the rest of the time in the flesh? No longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That was the verse in June of 19 that set the seed. I can't manage both worlds. So if Jesus saves us, what is our role? What is your role in salvation? Or maybe what is your role in helping somebody come to salvation? So if you want to look at back to Ephesians 2, we'll read verses 8 to 10. And it says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmen, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared us beforehand so that we could walk in them. I've been saying you were created for a purpose. We have a purpose while we're on this side of eternity, and that purpose is for the Christ Jesus for good works. Now, don't take that means, if I do that, I'm going to be saved. That's not the case. It's because you are saved we should want to please our Lord and Savior and do what he calls us to do. Back to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the set of verses I like to share if somebody ever says, well, I was baptized, I'm saved. Baptism won't save you. Baptism is an ordinance, yes, but it's not the saving grace. 
It's being obedient to Christ. Taking communion, which we'll do here shortly, won't save you. It's again, it's an ordinance. We're being obedient to Christ. You know, if being baptized was as simple as all it took to be saved, we'd have a horse trough permanently set up and ask you in the door and just rotate you through. Everybody gets to go swimming. That's not going to save you. The baptism is a recognition or public confession of your faith, not the saving grace. In Acts 2, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Repent and be baptized. There was two conditions. Believe in the Lord Jesus, another one. And John summed it up real succinctly in the gospel portion of the service this morning. Know that Jesus came on this earth. He walked this earth. He hung on that cross for our sins. My sins, your sins. Not just the ones that have committed, but the ones I'm going to get to commit tomorrow. I showed you. I've been saved for a long time, and I did it again on Thursday, and I'm sure I'm going to do it again today, and I'll do it again tomorrow. But he died for those sins on that cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He walked this earth, and he now ascends into heaven. That faith and those words, knowing that why he died on that cross, is what will save you. Nothing else. I don't care what anybody else says. doesn't matter. God's done all the work. All we must do is receive the gift and the faith that the salvation offers. Fully trust in Jesus alone as his death on the cross as the payment for your sins. God is offering you salvation. If you don't know our Lord and Savior today, grab a deacon, grab an elder, grab a leadership, grab somebody. Let them know. If that person can't help you, they'll help get you to one of us that can. But you, you must figure out who, what your role is with Jesus. In John 3, 36, And he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And we've already talked about what that wrath is. Your choices are, Eternity with our Lord and Savior, the lake of fire. So with that, I'm going to call the worship team back up. So all of this seems fairly easy, or at least as I went through this, it felt fairly easy. So why isn't it? Why isn't everybody saved? It comes down to a heart issue. Do you believe Jesus died on that cross for you? It's heart. In Luke 23, while Jesus was on the cross, he had two thieves on each side of him. One of the criminals that were hanging there, I don't know left or right, but criminal number one said, are you not the cross, Christ, sorry, save yourself and us, criminal number two, rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, 
for we are receiving our due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That man wasn't baptized. But he knew who, who his Lord and Savior was. He knew who Jesus was and accepted it. That's what got him in to Christ or got him into heaven. I'll finish with this and then I'll pray. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it all sounds so simple. But we, as was all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, we want to be our own controllers. We want to control our own lives. It's our pride. It's our own selves that we get in our way that will stop us from knowing who you are and what you have done for us. I thank you immensely for that gift of the cross, doing for ourselves what we could not do on our own. You gave us in the Old Testament all of the rules to follow and we showed you over and over we could not do it. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us his only son to die on a cross for our sins. And for that, each one of us should be truly thankful for who you are. And with that, I pray in your son's name. Amen.